This is the One Thing Podcast, where we teach you the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. I'm your host, Jeff Woods. We have a question for you. Is marketing your one thing? When you wake up and do what you do professionally, is marketing the one thing you do that makes everything else easier or unnecessary? For some of you, that answer is yes, but for many of you, that answer may be no. Yet, it's still a 20% vital priority for the organization as it funds the revenue, which drives the profit, which funds the mission of your business and hopefully allows you to live a bigger life. Yet as you go on this journey with marketing, if you are not a professional in this area, there's a lot of challenges that you can fall trapped to, even if you're a professional. The person you're going to meet today wrote a book to help you overcome those things. You've met this individual before back in episode 219. The episode was titled, How to Become the Leader You Would Follow. And we're going to have an interesting start to the episode because... Since that time, he at the time was the CMO of Franklin Covey, a very large thought leadership organization and the executive vice president of thought leadership. Since that time and during COVID, he started to ask different questions of himself and really disrupted his life and his happiness is higher than ever before. Our hope in sharing this episode with you today, you'll find there's two parts. There's the journey that he has gone on the last six plus months. And then we're going to dive into part two, which is going to help you overcome some of the challenges that you might be falling trapped to when it comes to marketing and growing your business. Our intent is to identify one thing you can do such that by doing it, everything else will be easier or unnecessary. With that, let's get into this conversation of the author of the brand new book, Marketing Mess to Brand Success, Scott Miller. Eating healthy is an investment. It's an investment in yourself, but it also often requires an investment of your time. But good news is Factor has delicious ready-to-eat meals that are ever fresh and never frozen, they're chef-created, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. With Factor, you can choose from a weekly menu of up to 35 options, including popular things like Calorie Smart or Keto Direction or Protein Plus or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover 60 more add-ons every week like breakfast on the go, lunch snacks, beverages to help you stay fueled, feel good all day. And we know our listeners here at The One Thing are focused on health and health goals. That's why we choose to partner with Factor. And if you visit factormeals.com slash 150 and use code 150, you can get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Again, that's factormeals.com slash ONE50 and use code ONE50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Mr. Miller, good to be back with you. Jeff, I'm honored to be here. Thanks for the platform and the spotlight today. My pleasure. So before we dive into uh, your, your new book, you have gone through a life transition. A lot of people, COVID created opportunities for uh, it. It gave people a lens to actually ask questions of themselves and challenge, is this the best way for me to live my life? Is there a new way? To live my life. Last time we had you on the show, you were a senior executive within Franklin Covey and you made some life choices. Walk us through that. I did. So I capped 25 years as an associate at the Franklin Covey company, the world's most influential, at least by size, leadership development firm. From the front line, literally to the C-suite, I was the chief marketing officer for almost a decade. 
was the executive vice president of thought leadership. And, you know, I came to a point at for 25 years that I wanted to spread my wings. I wanted to kind of see what I had in me, you know, from outside of the safety of a corporate umbrella and for that matter, the corporate safety net. So the CEO and I and the board had a, a, a protracted conversation over the course of almost a year talking about what could life look like for me inside the firm and outside the firm and maybe one foot in, one foot out. And so after many, many conversations uh, that were very transparent and, and, and high courage and high trust and clarifying expectations and setting boundaries, uh, I exited the firm last November. Uh, and I am now an advisor to the company on a three-year contract. I still host their podcast. I still, believe it or not, lead strategy for the firm, for our books, and for our, our thought leadership. But this allows me to kind of spread my wings, to go write some books and, and try some things and speak and coach and consult. And I'm, I'm honored and delighted at the trust the board and the CEO placed in me. And I still take my responsibility as a confidant and an ambassador for the brand, Franklin Covey, very seriously. And I'm about seven months in and I don't think I've ever been happier. There's a lot to unpack right there because a lot of people, you know, they, they, they spend their entire career scratching and clawing to climb the ladder. You climbed to the top. I did. In an influential company, great job making a huge impact. You, you made a few dollars too along, along the way. And even when you get to that point, you find yourself hitting a ceiling and asking, how do I break through? And the reason I point this out, Scott, is a lot of people where they're at right now, they're not happy where they're at. They feel the ceiling and they assume if I just get to that next place, then I'll be happy. But what they don't realize is the moment you shatter that ceiling, the ceiling just resets. What was missing in your life that you desperately knew you needed to be saying yes to? Maserati. Yeah, right. No, I'm kidding. You know, I, uh, I once had a colleague at Franklin Covey say to me, you'll never have enough until you've defined how much is enough. Mm. Fame, credit, love, title, money, attention, adder, you name it, right? You'll never have enough until you've defined how much is enough. And that's a, a principle that perhaps I had not adopted into my life. So there was that sort of um, adage haunting me in my head. And I was under a lot of stress, right? The pandemic had come on, our, 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 our stock had dropped and a whole variety of things was going on. We had three kids in private school. I, my, my wife is a, my choice, stay home full-time mom. So I went to a therapist. I'd never been to a therapist before. So I went to a therapist and the therapist said to me, sell your home, too much burden. We had this large, you know, 8,000 square, square foot iconic English estate in Salt Lake. She said, sell your home. We loved this home. It was crushing us. Money-wise, energy-wise, time-wise, we were living to repair this home and keep it going. We sold our home. Like, check, sold the home. I went back to her. She said, quit your job. <laughs> I went, I quit my job. And it sounds you know, you know, kind of trite, but it kind of took someone outside my circumstance to help me really understand what are some of the bold decisions I needed to make in my life? I'm not kidding you. A 53-year-old executive that otherwise has all the trappings of everything they want in life, professionally and income and such. And there were two things that were really weighing me down. 
One was this home that we loved. We just kind of couldn't see clearly how much pain it was bringing our life. And two was this wonderful career and job where after 25 years, it was time for me to boldly disrupt myself and spread my wings. And really, it wasn't that I couldn't, you know, I couldn't work for a company. I mean, 25 years in a public company, I've proven that I can, you know, work under processes and systems. I just needed to go. I needed to exercise the faith in myself that I've told other people they should exercise in their own. Say that again. I said, I need, I I said, I'm an idiot. That's what I said. (laughs) I said, I needed to exercise the same faith in myself that I've told other people to exercise in their own. I, I mean, how, how could I be credible if I'm telling other people to disrupt yourself and to live your dreams and, you know, run with your strengths and explore your passions. If I'm sitting under the safety net of, you know, stock options and board of directors and corporate brand and expense accounts. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago, Dave Hollis, uh, a mutual friend of ours, posted something on his Instagram and he was recap- recapping his exit from the, from the Walt Disney Company, I think 17 years. We have very similar paths. You know, he and his former wife, Rachel Hollis, just had a, a rocket ship for three years. It has since kind of, you know, fizzled a bit for a couple of unfortunate reasons. But Dave wrote where he had basically become kind of kind of comfortable in the pain he was in at Disney. And he realized he needed to disrupt himself and challenge himself. And I really can relate to that. I love the Franklin Covey company and I love where I am now even more. And I'm and they're and they're delighted for my my um, transition. It's interesting how people can normalize the pain of their current circumstance. And to a point, the pain of change is perceived to be higher than the pain of enduring what's current until there's a tipping point. And you can have pain without demonizing someone else, right? I mean, I don't demonize Franklin Covey at all. I was in a lot of pain. I needed to transition on. Quite frankly, they needed a CMO that had a lot of SaaS experience and background. And I, and I, the CEO asked me to stay three times. He asked, he begged me to stay as the CMO. And I said, no, for the betterment of me and you and our investors and our clients, we need some fresh blood. I, I'm quite courageous that way. One of the hallmarks of my career, Jeff, has been d- disrupting myself before someone else did. I once heard someone say to me, you're never in the room when your career is decided for you. And as disgusting and horrifying as that is, it's true. And I don't want anybody else deciding my career or my future for me. And so I took a bold effort, stepped out, uh, risky financially, right? I mean, the middle of a pandemic, you know, left a, a, an enormously secure role with a lot of stock that I left on the table. And now I'm in a place where I think I'm a better husband, a better father. Uh, I sold a few things, downsized. And that creativity that I was spending dealing with pain, the energy and genius in me that I was, that I was, I was managing stuff is now unleashing in new books and new interviews and new speeches. And, and I think there's, there's some wisdom in there around how much of your genius are you spending Hmm. managing your current situation versus solving that and unleashing it and, and, and marshalling it towards something better. I'm curious because a lot of people are working really hard and the dollars that are coming in, they are spending to build a lifestyle that requires that they keep working at that pace or more to maintain. 
What did you learn by actually scaling back? Well, I'll tell you, um, you and Jay uh, invited me to join your, um, your marriage workup session. The, the couple's goal setting retreat? The couple's goal setting retreat. Gosh, this was you know, six months ago. It was transformative. I, mean, I, I consider myself to be a fairly enlightened guy. And someone once read a book I wrote or listened to a podcast that I hosted. But that, that experience was transformative for me on a whole variety of levels. I, I could tell you all the things that I learned from you all. And it, here's what I realized is that I had a lot of stuff around me that I thought made me look better, that people would like me more because of the size of my house or the style of my car or the vacations that I took. And you know, at 52, you'd think you'd be beyond that completely. And I wasn't beyond it. We all have some, we all are in service to some level of the social mirror. It's just a fact. I don't care if you say you're not, you are in service to the social mirror at some point. And so for me, it was an enormous weight lifted off my back. Now we're not exactly, you know, camping out in a tent anymore, right? We we were prudent and saved money, and I am earning a few dollars. You got to get my family going camping last weekend. Come on, <laughs> I I don't get it, people. I don't get the camping thing. <laughs> I don't get it. I'd rather be at the Four Seasons because uh, their pool is better than your lake. But I did learn. I learned how attached my self worth and self esteem was to stuff. I still like stuff. I'd rather drive a Mercedes than a Subaru. I'd rather live in a beautiful home than not a beautiful home. I'd rather go to the Four Seasons and camping. But I've been a better, I'm more introspective on my self-worth, my self-esteem, my self-confidence cannot come from stuff. Love that. I love that. When we get back, we're going to talk about Scott's brand new book, Marketing Mess to Brand Success, and how you can start overcoming some of the challenges you might be falling trapped to in growing your business. So you fast forward to what you get to focus on now. And you have a brand new book. Talk to us about it. Sure. So I was uh, privileged to write a book called Management Mess to Leadership Success two years ago. Graciously, you interviewed me on your podcast for that book. Thank you for that. In fact, during that interview, can I tell you, I announced that anybody who connected to me on LinkedIn and sent me their mailing address, I would send them free uh, the deck of companion cards. I warned you. We sent out... We sent out 600 decks of cards. I warned you. <laughs> it was insane. And so, stand by, listeners. I transitioned from management mess to leadership success and wrote a new book called Marketing Mess to Brand Success. I was the chief marketing officer for eight years of this public brand, this global organization. And so naturally, it made some sense, right, to, to um, write this book. So this is in the Mess of Success series. The publisher was generous enough to sign me to a 10-year, 10-book deal in the Mess of Success brand, where I just think fundamentally, you learn more from your own messes than you do your successes. And you learn more from other people's messes than you do their successes. I I can't replicate Jeff's talent and vision and genius and personality, but I can learn from and avoid his messes. So I wrote (laughs) Marketing Mess to Brand Success. and, and, And listener, be advised, if 600 of you would like to receive a complimentary card deck for marketing mess to brand success, simply connect to me on LinkedIn, send me your physical email or mailing address, and I will mail you a complimentary card deck for marketing mess to brand success. And, and I will say, um, going back to the, the management mess, you sent me the decks, which I appreciated. And there was one 
about being clear about your intent. Yes. As a leader, uh, oftentimes you and the person you're communicating with are not on the same page. And it just gave the talk track. My intent is dot, dot, dot. I use that transformative for how I have communicated both with our employees internally, with our corporate partners, it, with, with my wife. She goes, well, you're sounding very professional, but it still works. <laughs> still works. That, that was really helpful. So I, I would advise you guys, if take him up on it. He's going to have a lot of shipping to pay for, but he's good with it. It's true. I just made a $10,000 commitment to your listeners, but I'm delighted to invest it. There you go. So, so Scott, why did you ultimately decide to write Marketing Mess to Brand Success? Yeah. So let's level set for a moment here. I, I wrote the book for many reasons. I think there are a lot... First of all, everybody is in marketing, whether you think you are or not. Just like everybody's in sales, whether you think you are or not. You are a marketing ambassador for your employer, for your own brand, for your own portfolio of properties, whatever it is your, your, your professional role is. You are in marketing. And by the way, everybody has an opinion on marketing. Nobody has an opinion on finance's second quarter close process. And no one has an opinion on IT's cloud server tech stack. But everybody's got an opinion on marketing. So if you're going to be around or in or involved in marketing, which you are, whether you know it or not, then you should probably be prepared to identify the messes and how to move to success. But the real reason I wrote the book is because I think in too many organizations, boutique consulting companies or small entrepreneurial real estate firms, whatever it is, there is this constant cancer of sales and marketing blaming each other, finger pointing. Well, we did our share. Why didn't you do your share? We didn't want that. We wanted this. And I wanted to be a transition figure in the marketing world to say, marketing, your job is to set sales up for success. Your job is not to just unleash your creativity and do stuff you love and feel good about likes. No, your job is to drive sales because you cannot staple brand equity to the back of a bank deposit slip and fund payroll off of it. And I think too many people get into marketing because they're creative types and they're right brainers like me. They don't realize your job is to drive pipeline. Your Mm -hmm. job is to communicate to potential clients, why our solution, why our service, why our expertise is what you should buy. So I'm passionate about the role marketing should play in organizations and the role everyone plays in marketing. I love what you said, Scott. And you know the, the, the truth is, there are some people that are listening to this episode that are marketing professionals that are going, yeah, I'm all in. And the majority of people who are listening to this, marketing is not in their job description the way it's written in words. And I, I know this is, this is us in our organization. For the last five and a half years, I've worn that hat. Our business is now at the point where we have earned the right to bring in a true professional to lead marketing, which we are still looking for that person. So if that's you, onething.com slash talent, please. And the thing that I love about your book is you've gone through a lot of these mistakes that people make whether it's in your title or not, that we can start to get more clear about how we do a better job of marketing what we do. So we drive sales, so we fund profits, so we fund the mission of the business. Thank you for that. I appreciate you reading the book and for the compliment. I am increasingly obsessed that the role of marketing is is to develop pipeline, is Mm -hmm. to drive sales, is to fund your mission, is to forward, progress, 
your mission. But the fact of the matter is, clients don't care about your mission. Clients care about their mission, Mm. their purpose, their need, their problem, their circumstance. And so much of the book is written about a bent toward your client, right? It's that gravitationally, we're always focused on our EBITDA, our P&L, our second quarter profits. I once heard someone say, the best salesperson isn't the salesperson who's memorized her second quarter goal. She's memorized her client's second quarter goal. And it's the same like, for example, in real estate, right? As, As you know, people buy homes for different reasons. And every professional should have an obsession, a fixation on understanding what circumstance is your prospect in? What is their exact exact circumstance? What job are they hiring you to do for them? It might be for stability. It might be for profit. It might be for income. It might be for you name. And that, you know, he who has a hammer thinks everything is a nail. Much of the book is talking about understanding the circumstance, the needs of your client and checking your own. This is a surprisingly simple idea. Understand what's in it for them. Doesn't mean it's easy or that it's commonly done. And in the book, you talk about 30 challenges that people have with this and how to overcome them. So take us there. I think one of the, my favorite books of all time, and like you, I'm a voracious reader, Beyond the One Thing, which has haunts me daily, right? Haunts me. I've memorized the entire you know, uh, uh, process of you know, goal setting to the now my favorite page of any book ever written. I really ripped it out and put it on my nightstand. I think it was page 151. I mean, I literally had the page number memorized. Maybe I had that wrong. Don't call me out, bro. Oh, I, I if you know that and I don't, I'm just going to... 151, 150, 50, 152. Dude, 150. <laughs> Look at that. Score. <laughs> the score. Awesome. Uh, another of my favorite books is Orbiting the Giant Hairball written by a guy who I think is named Gordon McKenzie. He wrote the story of shoebox greeting cards, which is sort of the avant-garde breakoff from Hallmark greeting cards. And he referred to Hallmark as the hairball and that shoebox greeting cards needed to orbit the hairball, not to get sucked into it, but to dip in for resources and dip out, dip in and dip out. And I think in many ways, every organization has a hairball, whether you're a, you know, a solopreneur or you're an upstart, or you've got an agency or a group with, you know, multiple brokers and, and, You've got a hairball. The likelihood, if you're the owner, you're the hairball. And so you want your people to orbit you and constantly be focused on prospecting what the clients need and your messaging. Donald Miller is a good friend of mine. He, of course, the famous marketer from Nashville, wrote Building a Story Brand, Business Made Simple. And he talks about how most people's messaging is like a cat chasing a rat in a wind chime factory. It's so complicated. It's all about why you are in business and how many offices you have and how, how much... No one cares. If the client can't find themselves in your message, your message is useless. Another an idea of just focusing obsessively on your client, checking your ego, checking your goals. And that really is the big purpose of the book is to remind people of fundamental marketing principles that govern industry, relationships, reputation, brand, revenue, profit, and ultimately get you to your one thing. So I'm curious, as the CMO of a publicly, former CMO of a publicly traded company, how did you fall trap to these mistakes? Well, I wrote a whole book. There's 30 <laughs> challenges of them. You want to you hear a story? Yeah. Let's, I'd love to dive into what some of those mistakes are, how you fell trapped to them, and what you learned along the way. 
Oh, I learned, I mean, so much, right? I mean, I, I could go anywhere and everywhere. Challenge one is it's the customer stupid. And I actually co-opted that from the messaging of the Clinton-Gore presidential campaign in 92, where James Carville and Paul Begala had that famous sign on the Little Rock, Little Rock, Arkansas room. It's the economy stupid. Because the only way Al Gore and Bill Clinton were going to beat President Bush and Vice President Quayle coming off 93% approval rating from the first Gulf War was on the economy. So it's the customer stupid. Is like a lot of leaders, I get sucked into corporate politics and pleasing the board and pleasing the CEO and managing my career, going to must-attend meetings to cover my you-know-what, when my you-know-what should be out listening to clients. So when you say productivity, what does that mean? When you say income earning potential, what does that mean? Because a lot of the words that I used weren't the words that they used. And while I'm in the corporate office building a political empire and career for myself, the world is changing rapidly out here. So I often fell victim to managing my brand internally more than I probably listened to the marketplace when it came back. It was the voice of the customer. No, actually, they're not calling it engagement. They're calling it growth. They're calling it this. They're saying that. I did too little of that. So let me recap that, Scott. You spent way too much of your time playing politics, sitting in meetings, doing the things that you felt like you had to do to get to the next level versus doing the activities that would actually drive the results that would actually warrant the promotion itself, i.e., talking to customers and being able to share messages in a way that a customer says it versus the way you think it should be said. That's exactly right. It's a beautiful recap. Is I'm embarrassed. I'm not embarrassed. I'm comfortable sharing that mess. I wish that were not the case. But I think if your listeners are vulnerable and introspective, they will relate to that. Of course, there's a certain amount of managing your brand that helps you secure your job and your influence. And your, right? I'm not naive to that. Yeah. And I think marketing's job is to be the voice of the customer. You know, Steve Jobs famously said, the customer doesn't know what they want, so we tell them. Great. If you're Steve Jobs, you behave that way. But for the other 99.9% of us in the world, I think your job is to listen more to your customer and represent their needs, their fears, their horrors, their problems, their circumstance. Clayton Christensen, the late author of numerous books from Harvard, was a friend of mine, a member of our board of directors. And he was obsessed with teaching people to understand the circumstance your client is in. Can I, can I share an example of that real quick, Jeff? Please. So uh, everyone knows what the Roomba is, right? This self-propelled self-vacuum cleaner. It used to be called iSuck by a, a company called iRobot. They named it iSuck. They had the wisdom to change that name. But here's what happened. When Roomba was first launched, they uh, did all this quality testing. And when the, when the, when the first responses were coming in, they were being returned because the batteries were wearing out too soon. And, 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 and iRobot, the owner of the iSuck, now the Roomba, could not square up. Wait, all of our QA testing, none of that showed up. Why are they, these engines being burned out, these motors being burned out? And what they came to realize is that the vast majority of early purchasers of the self-propelled battery-operated vacuum, Roomba, were being bought by heart patients, people that had just had open heart surgery, that had some kind of heart surgery, and their instruction was to go home and stay home for six weeks. And amongst a number of things, don't use an upright vacuum. I guess that 
agitates the rib cage of the heart and they weren't allowed to vacuum. Because these heart patients were now not allowed to vacuum, homebound, they wanted people to come to their home to visit them. So they ran their vacuum a lot. And they named them, 90% of them named their vacuum because the vacuum became a companion. And so what's interesting is not that Roomba could have done anything different, but there's great insight to learn. Roomba didn't know the circumstance that the majority of their early clients were in. Mm -hmm. And therefore their QA testing was a bit irrelevant because people were running them at three times the recommended rate because they wanted companionship. They wanted to clean home. They couldn't use their own vacuum. Interesting. I'm sure there's more to that story than I've shared, but I think there's an insight in there for all of your listeners. Have you paid the price to close your mouth and listen to the exact circumstance your customer is in? Do you possess the humility, the vulnerability to listen to your customer's circumstance? Because at the end of the day, Humble leaders are more concerned with what is right than being right. And if that is your governing lens in every relationship and your profession, you'll win every time. If we could only talk about one more mess that's in the book, which would it be? No, I think it probably would be... uh... A combination of two because they're very close. Well, no, no, let me pick another one. Number seven, bruised hard, heal fast. Challenge number seven in marketing mass to brand success is bruise hard and heal fast. By the way, if you want the card deck, connect to me on LinkedIn and I'll ship you out complimentary the card deck for the book. Um, this is about how, how quickly can you pivot? When you are in marketing, when you are in sales, when you are a leader, when you are in a marriage, when you are alive, you're going to be the recipient of lots of feedback, which is vital to your self-awareness as a leader, as a marketer, no matter your role. And I think it's important in life to be able to bruise hard and heal fast. Not wallow in pity, not defend all the reasons you said this or didn't do that, but just to say, you know what? That's good advice. Thank you. I'm going to pivot on. You know, as my brand becomes more and more public, I, uh, I have a lot of things on Glassdoor I hear about me. There's a lot of Amazon reviews about me. There are blogs dedicated to my hair, my glasses, and how fast I speak, and my stutter, and my air, on, on, and on. Bruise hard, heal fast. Find your people, find your posse, find your expertise, and go after it like no tomorrow. Seth Godin, the famous marketing mind and a friend of mine, says, disregard the advice of most marketing professors, which is to define your total addressable market. Save that for your SBA loan and your your private equity application. Instead, go to your smallest viable market. What is the least number of customers you can have to grow your business? What is your smallest viable market? It might be widows in their 80s looking for a safe rest for the rest of their ride. If that's your market, go after that. I know in real estate, you have farm areas and territories, but I think there is great wisdom in Bruising hard, healing fast, and nailing your smallest viable market. I want to dive in there. This is a challenge that we have right now. When Gary and Jay wrote The One Thing, they had a very specific type of person in mind, the small business owner. They wrote it for that person. The book went on to help everyone. Literally. Name it, it applies. 
And that's our challenge is when we look at our customer base, our email database, it's literally everyone. And for a company about one thing, it's really hard to want to help everybody and then go, okay, what is our smallest viable market? And how do we narrow our focus to that? What advice would you give to somebody who's listening to this who's in the same shoes that we're in right now? Recognize that it's unnatural. It's uncomfortable. It's counterintuitive. It's against everything you've ever been taught, right? Total addressable market. Who is my book for? Everyone. Who should come to my restaurant? Everyone. Who is my... Right. It's not true. Now, that doesn't mean that it might not end up resonating with a much broader market than you intended. But your, your messaging, your expertise, your examples is really going to boil down to a much smaller group of people that resonate with your personality, your expertise, is you got to find your posse. And so I think the first step is to recognize it's unnatural. It may require a Herculean level of focus and discipline to keep coming back to who really should be adopting the one thing as a, as a solution in their organization. It's not, it's not everyone. Everyone might want to, but you can't service orthodontists well and plumbers well and high-tech companies well and real estate firms well. You can't serve them all as well. And so I do think it just takes a level of self-awareness and unnatural focus to determine your smallest viable market. It requires what we call spearfishing, not net fishing. Because there's no question at Franklin Covey, right? Our, our solutions are probably better suited for some cultures than others. Everybody buys them. We're in every market sector. But if we were really to narrow down who benefits the most, I could tell you in a heartbeat the three you know, SIC codes or industries where our stuff measurably changes the needle. Yeah. Well, I, re- I remember a conversation you and I were having about our business and on the corporate side. And, and you told me um, there was a very specific market that you thought was being underserved, that you thought we were uniquely positioned to serve, mm-hmm. which was that company, which is in that, you know, 10 to 50 million range, because yeah. not everybody's focusing on them. And I've realized recently that actually is a sweet spot for us. Yeah, I believe it too. I, I believe your content is dangerous because it's so ubiquitously applicable and universally like passes the dud test. And the one thing's <laughs> biggest challenge, right? I mean, the one thing's biggest challenge could be trying to be all things to all people. And by the way, it's tempting, right? It feeds your ego. It feeds your mission. It validates your premise. And if you want to measurably help organizations and leaders serve their clients and build their brands and make more money and achieve their one thing, you'll exercise that same level of focus and discipline on who exactly could we have the biggest impact on. Otherwise, you know, again, I love, I love what Donald Miller said is that most organizations' messaging, and for that matter, their strategies are like a cat chasing a rat in a wind chime factory. And I love the visual and sort of just the audible, you know, uh, symbolism of him. It, 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 it is the most disciplined leaders that are able to say no to the good at the expense of the great, right? Is that there will always be more great ideas than there is capacity to execute. And if you look time and time again at the most successful organizations, they have this remarkable ability to say, no, no, we're not going to chase every client. No, we're not going to take and resolve every income incoming call, we're going to be very clear on where we can have the most impact. Can I share one final thought with you on this? Please. 
Um, I am privileged to host this podcast like you called On Leadership with Scott Miller. One of the guests we had was a, a woman named Karen Dillon. She's the former editor of the Harvard Business Review. Um, written numerous books, including a book called How Will You Measure Your Life? Highly recommend this book. How will you measure your life? Not as good as the one thing, better than Management Mess, but still a good read. <laughs> and in this book, Karen Dillon shares some research from a fellow Harvard Business School professor that said, I want your leaders, I want all your listeners to listen to me very carefully. This Harvard Business School research said that after an empirical research study, 93% of all organizations that achieved financial success as measured by their own criteria did it with an emergent strategy, not their deliberate original strategy. 93% of the times when an organization achieved financial results, they had to change their mind. They had to pivot from what was their original idea and move into something else. Only 7% of the time did the founders, the owners, the entrepreneur's original idea turn out to be the winning idea. It was a twist on that idea. They were open to influence. They were able to change their mind. They were open to be influenced by perhaps someone they weren't expecting it from. Maybe it was a junior associate, the competition, their nemesis, right? It was 93% of the time they had the intellectual and emotional agility to pivot and change their mind and set aside their ego and look at, listen to, create, co-create. I think it's haunting advice that everyone listening to your podcast should ask themselves, how nimble am I? Am I able to pivot? Am I able to change my mind? Not like with the wind, right? Come on, right? It means stand for something or fall for everything. But if you're going to accomplish your one thing, you may have to be open to serendipity and to change and to new ideas and to other people's points of views. That's a powerful leader, powerful so marketer. I'm going to tie this together to what you shared at the beginning about being willing to disrupt yourself because the decisions of your career are rarely made with you in the room. I remember the first time I walked into my partner Jay's office and on his whiteboard in the top left corner in Sharpie was written, what's the business that will put us out of business and how can I build it first? Mm -hmm. And he got that from Gary. And I remember end of 2019, I was in the room with him and he, he took out a piece of paper and a Sharpie and he said, let me draw what my career has looked like. And it was hypergrowth, plateau, hypergrowth, plateau, hypergrowth, plateau, hypergrowth. The question that he asked himself is what happened every time he went from plateau back into hypergrowth? The answer was he disrupted himself. Whether I'm both listening to you and writing down that quote because it's so profound. I'm going to email it to Franklin Covey's CEO. What's the business that'll put us out of business and how can I build it first? Absolutely. There That's profound. Yeah. yeah. He, he had to disrupt himself. Whether it was forming different habits, whether it was... Oftentimes, it was recruiting somebody into his world who was willing to be disruptive and he empowered them to do so. I'm watching him do it right now with Keller Williams, watching it happen. Wow. Uh, and I think there's a lot of wisdom in what you're sharing, Scott, 
And I think you're from, from how we started this episode to now, the last year has taught us all a lot. The things that we thought were absolutely true, we have to be in the office, no longer the case. And I think this is an opportunity for us as we come out of this pandemic to ask the question, how might I be even more disruptive? What actually does matter to me? And based on that, what is one thing I can do such that by doing it, everything else would be easier or unnecessary? Page 150. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I love that you knew that. So good. So good. Well, Scott, where can people learn more about marketing mess to brand success? Well, the book is available on every you know, book platform, both uh, bricks and mortar and digital, Amazon everywhere. You can find me at franklincovey.com or scottjeffreymiller.com. And as I mentioned before, uh, the first 601 people that want to <laughs> connect oh, to me so on LinkedIn and send me your mailing address. I won't come to your house. I won't send you any other mail, but I will send you a complimentary printed card deck that aligns with the book, Marketing Mess to Brand Success. Get ready, team, because start licking the stamps. <laughs> It's funny. I warned you last time. <laughs> you did. You did. <laughs> uh, well, Scott, great to be with you again, my friend. Appreciate the time. Jeff, thank you, man. Well, there you have it. Our conversation with Scott Miller. His story and the transition he has gone through really resonates with me. Um, I love how he said that the conversations about your career are often being had in rooms without you in it. And how do you become the type of person who's willing to be disruptive in your own life so that you actually get to make the choices about what you want your career to look like? I also appreciate the authenticity in him sharing how he tied his identity and his value to stuff. And he got some nice stuff and ultimately realized it wasn't bringing happiness. In fact, it was just giving him another job. And being willing to do the hard thing and actually sell the house, say no to the job. And as he, sh he shared with me before we pressed record in the episode, his happiness is higher than it's ever been. Our intent in sharing this with you is that whether you are a marketing professional or whether you have to wear that hat in your business, that you can start to identify what some of the challenges are that you might be falling trapped to so you can overcome them and achieve greater results. Like Scott said, if you'd like to look him up on LinkedIn, if you just search Scott Miller. Uh, you'll, you'll find him there. If you type in Scott Miller, Franklin Covey, he'll definitely pop up. Go ahead and send him a message, include your address, and he'll ship you those cards. Uh, they did a great job with them. So I would highly recommend doing it. If this episode has brought value to you, please think of somebody that you know that needs to hear this. Share it with them. And if you're new to the show, welcome. Click the subscribe button so all future episodes are automatically downloaded to your device of choice. And while you're at it, if you would consider leaving us a rating and review, it genuinely helps us reach more people and fulfill our purpose, which is to help you better invest your time so you can achieve extraordinary results. I'm your host, Jeff Woods. We look forward to being with you in the next episode.